All right. Uh, we are um, beginning a, it's going to be a total of, I think, six weeks, if my math is right. Next week, we are not meeting because of spring break. And then there is, uh, I think it's two weeks from then, we won't be meeting because I won't be here. So, um, so that cuts two weeks out before our next member meeting, which I think is slated for April 30th. Stay tuned on that. Uh, and so, and that's going to be a Sunday evening. And last member meeting, um, what was proposed was, by me, was a change, a modification to the bylaws. And that those bylaws are back there in the sound booth if you want a copy, if you haven't gotten one, and if we run out, we'll print more. Um, but essentially, the change is recognizing um, elder leadership in the church. It's really, a, it's really a shift in church governance, where elders become the shepherds and pastors of the church. Um, deacons are put in a place of service in the church, and um, all of this really for the building up of the church body. Now, um, what is being proposed in those bylaws is elder leadership and congregational rule. Um, I know that breaks the, the, maybe the mold of some preconceived notions already, where the, you maybe thought in the past there's only two options. There's either congregational rule or there's elder rule. And that's false. Uh, I think what the Bible is presenting is a, a, a pattern of elder leadership and congregational rule, where those two things are held in balance with one another. And so my aim over the next six weeks is to first show you why uh, that is proposed and why that's not just my preference, that's not just something, you know, maybe some drum I decided to beat or some horse I decided to beat to death. Um, but is, I think, the Bible's direction for a church that is following Jesus' uh, commands and why this is the pattern, I think, developed in the New Testament that we must apply if we want to be a church that actually takes seriously the Word of God. And so I know that sounds, uh, maybe that, that's daunting, or maybe that's uh, overreaching, but I, I think what you'll see, hopefully, at least at the end of the six weeks, if not even tonight, is what kind of pattern for church governance the, the Lord has laid out in His Word. Um, and so, because it's laid out, the way it's laid out in the Bible, I think it becomes a mandate for us. As we see a pattern developing in the way churches are established for the first 60 years, Christ leaves the first 60 years of church governance all the way up until the close of the Bible. We see the same pattern of church governance evolve in all the churches that are there. And then you look at the documents following the close of the New Testament of people that were discipled by the apostles and the way that they established their churches and carried on in pastoral ministry. It is that same pattern. You look for nearly 300 years this becomes the consistent pattern across church history, you start to see it not as an option, but as the way the Bible would have us set up the church. So, that being said, we need to look at all these things, and what my plan is, is first, to make a biblical argument for it, to show you how the Bible is envisioning the church being set up in its governance tonight. Next, uh, not next week, obviously we won't be meeting, but the week after that, is to connect that back to the Old Testament and, and really make the argument that the last person to lead God's people by himself as the only elder was Moses, and his father-in-law told him, that's stupid, <laughs> right? in no uncertain terms, and you should do it differently. Uh, and, and so God's people have always been led by a plurality of elders, and I, I aim to make that argument in a couple weeks. I guess I just made it, so there you go. You can show up or not. Uh, yeah, and then, and then from there, uh, really begin to address how the things I say in, or the things that are laid out in the bylaws connect back to the, the things laid out in Scripture, and really go through the bylaws. So, 
I, I'm great with you asking questions. We're going to open the floor for questions at, at certainly at certain points, though we may not necessarily tonight, it, it, but there will be a time for that. Um, and I want you to be able to ask any question, figure things out, ask why things were written the way they were written or whatever. And it's possible that there's some things that were just an oversight in the bylaws. You comb through 19 pages, you're going to make some mistakes. And um, have an opportunity to do that. But first, I want to make a biblical argument that we should do it and that you see, okay, I understand why the bylaws are there and why they were written the way they were written and then go forward from there. Does that make sense? You're tracking with me so far? Okay. Um, so let's just get started here. There are two synonymous terms that are used in the New Testament for the leaders in the church. And we're not necessarily talking about deacons. That's another office in the church, and, and uh, we'll briefly touch on them. But it's mostly about elders tonight. So, um, so two synonymous terms, and that is elders or overseers. And they're, they're used, they're flip-flopped. They, they seem to be used... Um, without really uh, a concern for which, which term is being used. There seems to be no rhyme or reason, in other words, for the term that is being used. And I want to show you that, that they are both uh, on the same playing field here. They're synonymous. Um, the first example of this is in Acts 20, verse 17 and verse 28. And you can see this. I'm going to um, just get out the little John Madden telestrator here. Um, it says, uh, this is... Paul calling for the elders at the church at Ephesus to come to him. So it says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. But then notice what his command is, so just a few verses later, to them is pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. We're going to come back to this in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So you can see already from the beginning that Paul is calling the elders to him, and he is telling them that their function in the church is overseers. And then he says, care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This word right here, flock, is used in connection with sheep, okay? This word here, care, is the same word where we get the word pastor. Now, pastor is technically a Latin term, which means shepherd. This is the Greek term, but for shepherd, okay? So, it's a Greek term, we get the term pastor from a Latin word, but it's basically the same thing. The, the word is care for the flock. So you have elders in the church that are coming, and their, their task, their job is oversight. Their role, their function in the church is oversight. The Holy Spirit has made them overseers in the church. And the job that they perform is pastoring. That's, the, their, that's what the work looks like. It's synonymous with or it's equivalent to pastoring. So the word pastor is something like a metaphor for what an elder or overseer does. Does that make sense? It's, it's a metaphor for like a person would tend sheep. You see this again in First um, Peter. I didn't move it, did I? Okay, good. First Peter 5, 1 to 3. He says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, so Peter is also an elder in a church, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well, I think a, a marked out compulsion, there they go, uh, as a, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Here's the command, shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, okay? Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Um, there's a, a, another uh, passage that I don't, I'm, I'm not going to telestrate it, sorry, let me go back, um, but is in Titus, it's 
verses one five or chapter one verse five and one verse seven, and I want you to look at that. It's on your handout. This is why he's telling Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he gives, right after that, the qualifications for the elders that Titus is appointing. And he says this, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. And on he goes. So, Paul's use of the word, he, he flip-flops it, almost to say the position is elder, the duty or the responsibility, the way to think about that is exercising oversight, and the metaphor for how you're to do that is like a shepherd cares for the sheep. He's not domineering over the sheep, he's not beating the sheep to death, he's caring for, he really wants the health and prosperity and, 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 and well-being of the sheep that are in his, in his charge. And so uh, the New Testament is already beginning to shake, shake these things out, all right? So uh, these two formal titles, elder and overseer, are joined by a third synonymous, though somewhat less formal title of pastor to clearly communicate the responsibilities given to this office. So when, you, when you're thinking about this, all three terms... Are, are in the New Testament are kind of flattened out. One functions as like a metaphor for the office. It's fine to call an elder in the church a pastor. That's what he does. We, we kind of use that colloquially, but it's a, it's a metaphor for tending sheep, essentially. And that office of overseer and elder, is all three of them are kind of flattened out to be the same position. This is the same role. It's not, you're not creating, you're not having pastors and then you're creating another office called elder, and another one called deacon, and then now there's three instead of two. That's not, that's not what we're talking about. This is a, 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 a flat term. They all refer to the same essential position. So what that means then is like a church who calls a pastor to serve over them, but has no one else around him that's on the same level as him, essentially you've got one elder in the church. Okay. That is the function that you have. Whether you acknowledge that or not, I, I guess that's, that really doesn't matter as much. You, you, you do have one singular elder as the pastor of your church. Okay? Um, and we're going to talk about more about what that means in the coming weeks. But. So the, all three of these terms for the same office are used to communicate the, what exactly is involved in the role. You can hear in the term elder, even just in the way that it's used and applied to a particular person, the term elder, it emphasizes the spiritual maturity that is going to, going to be required for that office. So we're not talking about people who are, you know, still playing with Tonka trucks, right? Like that's not, we're, and even the, the New Testament is going to go to great lengths to say, we're not, uh, not to be a new convert, and so the, the term elder is not just for an older person, though certainly that may, that may certainly be the case. It's not just talking about an older person. What really it's talking about is a spiritually mature person. As Paul will make clear in the qualifications, this is not to be a recent convert, because otherwise they get really puffed up and they think, okay, man, I'm, I'm really cooking with grease now. Um, and so then the term overseer communicates the leadership uh, of the church, the direction that they're to give. They are to literally oversee everything that's happening within the church. The direction of the church, where the church's money is being spent, how the church's money is being spent. That's a direct tie to how they view all kinds of things spiritually. It is, it is the direction of every aspect of the church, right? Uh, and then the term pastor or shepherd, it communicates the, the feeding or the nurturing, the protection of the congregation, or uh, the, as the, the, the scriptures will use from time to time, the flock. Okay, so you see these these terms are, are they're, they're flip flopped back and forth, and really the term pastor is used as a noun one time, and it's used as a gift that God gives to the church in Ephesians four eleven. I didn't include that one in there, but you can write that down and go to it later on. But he says that he gave. Um, uh, 
all these kinds of different leaders to the church. And one of them, it says, is a teacher and, and shepherds. And it's probably more like a shepherd teacher. Like, that's probably more a better translation of that uh, phrase. But the point being that God gives men uh, to the church to shepherd, to guide, to teach the, the Word to the congregation. And through the teaching of the Word, they grow into maturity. That's, that's one of the main ways in which that shepherd guides, protects, uh, shepherds the flock and keeps them from wolves. So, New Testament churches were not governed by one person, but were led by a group of men who held the office of elder, of overseer, of pastor. And I want to show, um, I, I, we'll take a look We'll take a look at some of this in just a minute. Uh, actually, let me get through some of this, and then I'm going to go back to a, a, a couple of verses. Um, so, you'll notice as you read through the New Testament, when the term elder is used, it's never used in the singular, it's used in the plural. The only time it will be used in the singular is when it's referring to, it, it, generically, there's one time it refers to elder generically, and it says, Paul tells Timothy, don't admit a charge against an elder. Uh, you know, not, not meaning to say there's only one in a church, but meaning to say if one is being charged with something, don't admit a charge against that person, uh, you know, unless it comes from several uh, witnesses, two or more witnesses. And then the, the other time will be when Peter or when John refer to themselves as an elder. So I am an elder in the church, right? It would be singular in that case. But in all other times, it's referred to in the plural. And, and I want to show you in particular where this kind of uh, uh, comes up in just a minute. Further, to make it even kind of more pointed uh, argument here, no passage suggests that any church, no matter how small, had only one elder. The consistent New Testament pattern, it says pattern, but it should be pattern, is a plurality of elders in every church. Now, there, there is some that will argue that what you're really seeing, they'll, they'll make a kind of a cultural argument, what you really see in the New Testament is a city, like say, name a city, Philippi, or something like that, right? And that city has many house churches throughout that city. And Titus or Timothy or, whomever, or Paul himself went into that town and in each house church appointed an elder in that house church. And then back up and says to the elders at Philippi, meaning each pastor in each church. Um, the argument, I hear the argument, I understand the argument, and certainly there were house churches, and certainly there were churches that were small. But I would say that argument doesn't hold water when the New Testament text is considered. And here's, the, here's a couple of verses that highlight this. Um, I'm going to get my John Madden Telestrator out again. And when they had appointed elders... For them in every church. That's not how you communicate one elder in each church. That is how you communicate a plurality of elders in every church. Okay? With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. So if you can kind of wrap your mind around the pattern that's being established here, is Paul is witnessing to the Gentiles, he's sharing the gospel in the towns, and in these towns, believe it or not, not every church was persecuted. A lot of them enjoyed the same protections that many of the Jews received. In fact, it wasn't until much later that the Jews began going, they're not part of us, and Rome stopped giving the same protections to the Christian church that the, the Jews were receiving, and so kind of treated them as a separate as a separate entity, and then started to bring down the, the persecution. But until then, they, you know, early on in the church's ministry, they enjoyed some 
measure of open-air communication. You see this even in Jerusalem of Peter and the church gathering together in thousands as Peter and the apostles, who are the functioning elders of the church at Jerusalem, are teaching the churches. And so they're meeting out in the open air, or sometimes they're taking over whole synagogues, or sometimes they're meeting in uh, halls of Tyrannus, like in, in Acts. They're meeting in, in uh, open air settings and all kinds of things. But they're being uh, established, what's being established over them is a, a group of men who are appointed to teach, to shepherd, to guide, to take the Old Testament and to help the congregation see how this points to Christ. Remember, the New Testament wasn't readily available. It wasn't even finished yet, okay? And in some cases, it wasn't even begun, hardly. And, and so they're taking the Old Testament text, they're demonstrating how this text points us to the resurrection of Jesus and how your hope should be in Jesus. And there were certain men in the congregation who were appointed with the task of doing that and then also attending to the direction of the church, as we'll see in just a minute. And so they're going through and they're appointing elders in each church. And, and obviously Paul's going to lay out a list of, of how you go about assessing the elders' qualifications and things like that. But they're appointing uh, many in each church. And then uh, James also gives us. Now James, the benefit of the book of James is that it's very early. This is, a, a, this is so early, in fact, that, that at least it seems like to me and many other commentators that the book of James is so early that James, that James is showing the Christians still very much meeting in the synagogue with, with maybe even some Jews that are amongst them, which was relatively common. Because you can imagine a Christian coming, out, coming from a Jewish background and growing up born and raised as a Jew, what is he going to do? Well, well, I mean, all he knows is this Jewish synagogue. So, but now when he goes and he hears the, the person reading in the synagogue, Isaiah 53, what's he thinking? By his stripes we are healed. Amen, brother. Let me tell you what that means, right? Okay, so like... There's some uh, relationship between the early Jews and the early Christians when they're, they're meeting together as the gospel is still growing. Uh, but James says this, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the, what is it? Elders of the church. So let him call for the elders of the church. Now think about this. If we we got the town of Philippi, let's say, and or wherever Jerusalem or whatever, and and there is one elder in each church. Okay, let's just say that's what it is. Someone sick among you, and he's supposed to call all of them from all the the houses. That seems illogical. He's at the very least treating this as one congregation. This is one group of people, and the leaders of those people are many elders, plural elders, let's say it that way, not, maybe not a hundred, but just plural elders. And they are called alongside of this person who is sick. And we won't get into the complexities of this verse later on, okay, about the anointing with oil, we can talk about that at another time. But the point is, and, and, and also it should be noted, let him call. If you're sick, tell somebody, all right? Don't just go, they never even said anything. It ever occurred to you we didn't know. Uh, all right, sorry, that's soapbox. I'm not dealing with that. You're never going to live it down. <laughs> just... You shouldn't tell me where you're going if you're not going to show up. <laughs> That's when you don't call. <laughs> um, all right. So the New Testament expectation of a church's polity is that a group of qualified men identified by uh, uh, other elders and church members, so... Elders in the church identify these men that are qualified. They, um, they bring them before the church body, 
they're affirmed by the church body. I mean, maybe in some cases they're denied. Obviously, that, that could be the case. I know something about this that, you know, you don't maybe. But they're voted on, affirmed by the church body, and they serve as shepherds of the congregation. You tracking, like, how, this, how the New Testament is shaping up um, the body of the church? Okay. Um, so, when it comes to the relationship between that and deacons, just like you see with the elders, there's terms, elder, overseer, pastor, that communicate all the functions of their church. The name itself communicates what they do, right? And the fact that all those terms are synonymous, it communicates what they do. The word deacon literally means servant. It's used in the Bible as servant. Sometimes it's used in the Bible as just generically servant, right? Not meaning the role deacon, but just the, you know, the fact of being a servant. Uh, in outside the New Testament, it's used for everything from a courier of a letter, someone who deacons the letter from one place to another. They carry it from one place to another. They serve that letter to someone else. Um, the name itself suggests that they serve the temporal needs of the congregation, thus enabling the elders to teach and shepherd the members of the church. So they, um, they, they handle a lot of the temporal needs of the congregation. Look at, at um, Acts chapter 6. I've got that in your verse handout, I believe. should be on... Where is it? As soon as you find it. I got it on there somewhere. What is it? Page four, I'm being told. Yeah, mid, midway down. Page four, midway down. I want, I want you to take note of a couple of things here. It says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, I, I want you to pay close attention to what's happening here. As I said, the, the, the original twelve apostles who are called out here in verse two, the twelve, um, of course, minus Judas added Matthias, but you get the idea. Um, those twelve serve as the, the original elders of the church at Jerusalem. And the reason we know that is because the function that they're serving in the church is the exact same that we're going to see in a minute that is what pastors, elders, shepherds, overseers are supposed to be doing. Okay? And how they serve the church. How they protect the church, how they guide the church, and how they lead the church. Now, some take this message here from Peter and from the Twelve to say, we only want to open the Bible and we want to preach the Word of God on Sunday morning and then, and, and that's it, and then pray, and, that, and that's it, and everything else is left up to everyone else. We know that's not true, because in the previous chapter, Peter and the apostles have seen fit to position the church in Jerusalem to sell possessions, bring their money in, and we're going to distribute that to the poor in our community. And why do they do that? They do that because the preaching of the Word has mandated for their congregation, this is the direction we need to go. So Peter and the apostles, who are elders in the church at Jerusalem, are determining the direction of the church, the ministerial direction of the church. Another example of the ministerial direction that they're taking is they are serving food to widows. All the widows are getting a daily distribution of food. But the problem has arisen that some widows are being left out because of just a lapse in oversight. Somebody's not watching the mashed potatoes when they're put on the plate and who they're going to. And so, as part of the execution of the ministry of the elders and of the church, the elders are saying we're creating a position 
to serve the mashed potatoes to these widows. Okay? And here's what we're going to do. We're going to allow you to look across the congregation, and we want you to find seven men of good repute, and we want you to appoint them to serve. We will make sure they're good, and then we'll commission them to serve. They present these men, they seem good to them, and they, they commission them to serve the tables. And they were good men of, of repute. So we're going to get later on that deacon ministry fleshed out a little bit more in terms of its qualifications and things like this. But the important thing to note here is that the elders are looking at the ministerial direction of the church and they're seeing we want the ministry to go this way to serve the widows in a daily distribution. But we lack, what we lack are, is the leg power, the manpower to actually carry it out. And so, we're going to enable these deacons, we're going to basically create a position called deacon, which would later be called deacon, who are going to enable the ministry of the church to go forward. Does that make sense? This morning, I'm sitting in my office, and I'm pounding out this worksheet. And I hear outside, chainsaw, right outside my window. And I look out there, and Freddie Yates, who's a deacon, and Philip Heinemann, are out there juggling chainsaws back and forth, taking swipes at, at bushes that have grown unwieldy out in front of our, our, our church. And I, I'm, I'm calling them out because they're, what they're doing is deaconly service to the church. Okay, So they're enabling the ministry of the church to go forward. I know a, a, a bush seems like, you know, what, it's the little bush, who cares? Right? But after a while, the property goes unwieldy and it becomes, looks like it's unmaintained. And the deacons are functioning in a position where they're enabling that ministry to go forward and it not to be hindered by anything such as a bush or anything else for that matter. And so where a, a widow's light bulb needs to be changed is you can't climb up a ladder. That's, the deacons will change a light bulb you know, or will do you know, whatever is necessary. And they have done over the course of these many years. Um, they've served us well. So imagine that when the elders of the church are swamped in the mundane or temporal, I don't mean mundane in like the, in the pejorative, like the derogatory sense, but like just the everyday affairs of life, when they get swamped down in those mundane and temporal needs, things like restriping parking lots and fixing toilets and cutting down bushes and, you know, those kinds of things, they can fail to attend to the deeper and spiritual needs, which is the very essence of the church. You have to understand that we don't meet together in order to collect money. That's not the function of the church. Money enables us to better do ministry in some cases. Maybe pay staff members. Maybe do X, Y, or Z. But it's, it's wholly unnecessary in terms of the church's main function. The church can get together under a shade tree out in the middle of nowhere, and we can worship the Lord Jesus. Now, it's not going to be long before the people gather together, so long as they have means that they start to take those means and go, I think we should give these to other people. <laughs> because that's the Spirit's direction for when He blesses people with means, it's meant to be given, and then He tends to bless them more so that they can give again, not so that they can stop. He tends to bless them more so that they can give again, and it continues to do this, right? That, that tends to be the pattern. But it's not a, a guarantee. It's not necessary. It's not a mandate even. There, there are congregations all over the world that meet that have not two nickels to rub together amongst all of them. And there's not much of a collection that they take up, if there is any. So, and, but they do seem to help other people around them in other ways. So you can kind of see as the, as the, the, the pattern is evolving amongst the church, here's the, the hierarchy that's being set up is that elders, pastors, overseers are there to shepherd the ministry and the direction of the church. And the deacons come along as servants to help enable that ministry to go forward better. 
And then they come alongside other members of the church and they put their arm around you and go, hey, will you help me cut down this tree? And the other members go, I don't know how to do that. I'll teach you, right? And then they, you kind of go and then they learn how to do this. And now all of a sudden the deacon ministry is being multiplied amongst the entire congregation. You can kind of see how this, how this works. But there's one very simple reason why that kind of structure is put in place and it makes complete and total sense when you think about it. One simple uh, arrangement for this, uh, or reason for this arrangement, is that no one man possesses all the gifts necessary for leading a congregation. Some men are endowed with strong pulpit gifts, but lack effective pastoral skills. Others excel in pastoral work of visiting and counseling, but are not strong when it comes to pulpit exposition. Some have unusual abilities in organizing and administrating the ministries of the church, but falter in pulpit and counseling skills. Some, to be sure, are multi-gifted and capable of doing different things, but the strain of tending to the entire ministry needs of the church can quickly deplete even the most gifted men. So I included that quote because I thought that is the, a perfect summary of why that structure exists and why it is for your good. There are more ministry needs that could, than can be accomplished by one man standing as pastor over a church. It makes absolutely no sense for, for reasons we'll, we will gradually get into over the next few weeks. But one, for sure, is that no one man possesses all the gifts of pastor. So what happens, what tends to happen is a singular pastor becomes a pastor of a church and people kind of get used to how he does things, right? Well, I like the way he preaches, but man, he just falls short when it comes to, you know, bedside manner, you know, or whatever. Or man, he, he's, we're, the church is bringing in more money and bringing in more people than I've ever seen before in my life, but the guy can't preach worth a lick, you know? Or he's just, you know, whatever, boring to listen to or whatever. Or a host of other things. And so what happens is we get used to this and we deal with this for however long he's here. Maybe it's 30 years. And then he retires and all the people go, you know what I'd really like in a pastor? This guy, he was a good preacher, but, you know, the bedside manner, I'd like somebody that's just a little bit more, that's a little better at the bedside manner thing. And so they go out looking for the anti-that guy, you know, whoever's the opposite of that guy. Okay, and so then they find the guy that's, re that man, when he comes in the meeting and all this kind of stuff, he just has you at rapt attention, and one-on-one, -on -one, he's just so warm and friendly, and then he gets up into the pulpit, and he's just dry as an old piece of toast, you know? And so then you deal with that for 30 years, and you go, you know what I'd really like? I'd really like the pulpiteer, the guy like Spurgeon. And you go find him, and then you realize, well, he just can't organize his way out of a paper bag. And all of a sudden, the church is in disrepair and all this other kind of stuff. It's because no one man possesses all the gifts. Can't. And no doubt, you've seen a pastor who's good at this and, and, and not good at that. I know you've seen that in me, I'm sure. You know, he's good at this, he's not good at this. The point of a plurality of elders is to balance out the pastoral gifts amongst many people so that they can actually and effectively shepherd the flock of God that is among them. Because believe it or not, you don't just need the pulpiteer. Now all of them are to have the gift of teaching to some degree. That doesn't mean they have to be seminary trained. That doesn't mean they have to be Charles Spurgeon. It just means they need to be able to open the Bible and go, this is what this means, and be able to explain it in a coherent way so that people understand what's being said there. They have that gifting of teaching you without having to be Charles Spurgeon. Okay? But what it does is it balances out those gifts, and what is the purpose? Well, so that they can fulfill the purpose of an elder, which is, not just, is actually not to come over you and say, no, you will do it this way, or, oh, you're going to buy a car? Well, you've got to submit the car payments to the church so we can be sure that you can... No, it's not about abuse. It's not about those kinds of abusive tactics, which may be done in some churches by some elders. 
But that doesn't excuse the clear direction of the church as being a plurality of elders that's meant to minister effectively to the congregation as a whole. And there's going to be some people that are elders that you have better relationships with than others that are going to come to you and have more of a, of a pastoral relationship with you maybe than some other elders do. But the point is you're being ministered to where maybe if there's just one guy, you'd be forgotten altogether, right? It's meant for the benefit and the building up of the body, not the squashing of the body. And believe it or not, it's not about power either. It's about diffusing the power. Let's play this out for 30 years. Let's say I'm here for 30 years, which I hope is what happens or more. And I'm pastoring the church, and some of you, I'm not saying who, might not be with us any longer, might have progressed to the next Sunday school of heaven, who knows. And all the people here are here and knowing what they've got in the pulpit, right? So they are more or less, you might call them, they're, they're Michael people, right? Like they're, they're like, you know, we're not here in spite of the pastor, we're here, you know, he's... We know who's pastoring us, okay? Okay, so let's say that happens. So in 30 years, let's say I look across the sea, and whatever I, I, I want to have done, I'm pretty sure the vote's going to be 100%. How dangerous of a situation are we in then when one man is able to take however many people are here and get whatever he wants done? Without consideration of whether or not this is scriptural, whether or not this is a biblical direction, whether or not this is even good for the church. I think we should build a $6 million building. If we build it, they will come. And then we just take out a $6 million loan with 30 people that are over, all over 80. And we're all standing around going, I know we're on a fixed income, but the Lord will provide, right? And now we're in $6 million of debt, and you know what? Who cares? We won't pay it off anyway because we'll all be dead, right? So, so you know... Do we want to be in that position? Absolutely not. And let me tell you, I've served in a, in a church where the pastor had been there for 35 years. And he was the only pastor in the church, and everybody knew it. And he could do whatever he wants. Now, granted, he's a good guy. He's a God-loving guy. And he doesn't want to lead the church in a bad direction. But the point is, he could if he wanted to. And if his mind slips just a little bit, he might. Right? Before somebody has the nerve to come up and say, we think you have dementia. And, right? He could. So, what, what forestalls all of that? It is a group of men that come around him that are mature, godly men that know how to handle the word and say, Pastor, that's not wise. And can balance out that power, that authority. But beyond that, believe it or not, there's not a whole lot of power that's, that's really at stake here for me to grab, right? Anyway, I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher. I hope you know that. <laughs> and if I ever start passing a boot for my own coffers, I want you to fire me, all right? Please do. So then what do elders do? I want to just, we're going to go through this relatively quickly, but what do elders do? The duties of elder in the New Testament are best summed up in a fourfold manner. The first is doctrine. The primary biblical qualification that distinguishes elders from deacons is that the elders must be apt to teach and be able to engage others doctrinally. Again, that does not mean that they have to be Charles Spurgeon. That simply means that they have the qualification of teaching. Now, now, put these two things together. The elder is charged with being able to teach. And then later on in 1 Timothy, same book where Paul makes this qualification, and I've got the verses listed there. We're not going to read them just yet, but, or right now, but you have them there for, in front of you. Paul gives this ex exhortation to, to Timothy. Here's what the qualifications of an elder are, and they have to be able to teach. And later he will tell Timothy... Take the word of God that is able to train in righteousness the man of God 
so that he's fit for every good work. It's able to correct him, to reprove him. Why? Because that word that you're preaching is breathed out by God. So, the reason the elders have the responsibility of teaching and why you can't have a church that is really and truly led by a group of people that are not elders and that are not qualified to teach is because the Word of God is what shepherds the people. It's not actually me. I mean, it is in some respects, but the, the way that I'm guiding you is by a directive from the Bible itself. And my agenda is to take the Word of God and open it in front of you and read it and explain it, what it means. And the direction that I see the church going, the direction that we want to go, is founded here. And it, we, we go this direction because the application of the Word takes us in that direction. That's why Peter and the apostles are feeding the widows. That's why they're taking in money and distributing amongst the poor among them. And the reason they're doing that is because the Word of God has pointed them in that direction. And Peter and the rest of the apostles are overseeing that direction of the church. So, what happens normally is, a, is in many churches, they have the one singular pastor, and then they have a board of deacons, which actually function more like a plurality of elders. And those elders, which are called deacons, now serve as what we would say is a check and balance against the pastor. But the problem with that is they can't actually lead the church except in carnal directions because they're not taking the Word of God in front of the congregation and shepherding them through it. They're just going, I think it would be good to have red carpet. Let's put it to a vote. But that's not what the Word of God is doing. And that's not what the function of an elder is really supposed to be. But that's the character it takes on in the church. But do you see that the pattern of church, as it's been established in the New Testament, for many years, 60 years, then 300 years, and then throughout church history as well, with rare exceptions, that it's always been a plurality of elders for this very reason. But then when we shift it out of focus, which started to happen somewhere around the early 1900s, Southern Baptist churches who were founded by churches that were a plurality of elders switched to a singular pastor and gradually begin to drift away from the doctrine that the New Testament is actually laying out and the expectation for our churches. You see how the doctrinal drift happens though? And then we get to a plurality of deacons and a singular elder, which the New Testament nowhere lays out. And now we read back into the New Testament what we expect from our current congregation. So now we're practicing a process called eisegesis where we're reading back into the Word something that's not there. And we're expecting God to do something. Church polity actually matters a great deal. Because we can't really say we're people of the book. We're not doing what it actually says we should do. All right. Second, discipline. Elders are concerned with the training, admonishing, encouraging, correcting, and at times even excommunication of members of the church. This function in shepherding is how they keep watch over the souls of the congregation. You can see this, the, the, the amount of weight that is put on the elders and the leaders of the church. Look at this in Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, that's elders in the church, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. We're going to talk about that in a second. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for their keeping watch over, over your souls. As those who will give an account, let them do this with joy and not groaning for what that would be of no advantage to you. This excommunication process and the discipline process of, of people, it's how you care for the flock, but you're not excommunicating somebody just on a whim, just because you don't like them. First of all, there's a plurality of elders that are going, yes, we agree. Then they're bringing the word of God before the people and going, this is why we think this is egregious sin and why it has to be dealt with in the congregation. 
direction. Elders are concerned with decision-making, planning, administration, delegation, and even governing details of church life. They're tasked with some measure of headship and direction that isn't lordship nor abusive, but allows them to direct the function of the church toward biblical ends. I think we've covered that extensively already, but um, just to say that that doesn't mean an elder rule. That means a bringing it to the congregation saying, I really think this is the direction we need to go, and here's why. Uh, and then the congregation responding based on how they see the, the word of God being used there. And obviously the trust that they have in the elders. Uh, and finally, distinction. And this is probably the most daunting responsibility for an elder. But it involves modeling the Christian life. Elders are to be examples to the flock. And we can see this in 1 Timothy 3, 2-7. Titus 1, 7 and 8, and, and even all the surrounding passages, verses around there too, that the, the pastor, the elders, are not just held up as people that have authority, but they're held up specifically because of the character that they're demonstrating. And that's supposed to, the design of that is to set a pattern for the people in the pew to be able to follow. Question. Let's vote. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yes, David. Yeah, um, the, the word there, obey, is uh, not the strongest word he could have used. The, the strongest word, obey, that would be translated obey, would be like, um, without question. Right, like a, a, a soldier obeys his you know, drill sergeant or his sergeant or something like that. The word obey here is, it, the connotation is by listening to a well-reasoned argument. So the, the, it, it's a submission to, they have the floor, they're going to argue the biblical position, and there's a measure of trust that I have with them, there's a measure of, I need, I, I need to see your logic here, that it's coming from Scripture. But the, the design of that is through a well-reasoned presentation from the Scriptures, we would say, um, for this biblical direction, we should be persuaded. Um, so it's not that the congregation is just a, uh, uh, what's the word? Just a rubber stamp. Yeah, it's not just that they're a rubber stamp on the thing. It's that they are putting a great deal of trust in the elder body. And they are, but they are expecting that whatever the direction be, that there, is a, there are reasons they had for getting to that place. And that they are godly people, and they're coming from godly places. And they should be able to explain those places. And given that they can explain those places, more often than not, we're going to trust them. There may be situations where an elder is presented before you, and we're saying, we, you know, check and make sure, you know, congregation, if you know anything, you know, bring, let me know, you know, that something that I don't know. And, and you go, hey, I happen to know that, you know, he engages in, you know, dogfighting on the weekends or something, you know, and you're like, well, that's not good. You know, we didn't know that. So, you know, he's disqualified. So there may be times where you kind of go opposite of rubber stamp. We're, this is not good. We're not doing this. But, on the whole, that we're leaning towards trust and we're wanting to trust the elders because of the position that they have. That's kind of the idea that's presented there in 1370. Yeah. Terry Mobbs. Um, uh, we would ask them essentially the million questions. Um, so, you know, uh, we definitely want to know all doctrinal positions, um, especially um, especially some of the, you know, the more contentious doctrinal <laughs> positions. Of course, we would want to know those. Um, we would, we would want to ask all the questions that we would ask of a normal, and, but, but normally the elders are the ones doing that. They're the ones vetting. And then what they're presenting to the congregation is, we think this person is qualified as an elder 
because of their character, but because of their ability to handle the scriptures, right? And so that takes more weight than just about anything else. Whether they fall here on their end times position or here, where the weight falls more is, can you walk me through that biblically while you land where you land? Can you answer these questions about why you land where you land? That is, I think, a bare minimum of, of the qualification of elder. Yeah, they should be able to do that. Shannon. So in, in the, the way the bylaws are written is that the elders are able to appoint committees to do any number of things that they need done, okay? Um, so, so in my view, as, it's, as I sit here right now, a finance committee will be necessary for the foreseeable future. But imagine a day, 30 years down the road, let's say, you've got 25 elders in a room and the congregation is a thousand people and 10 of those elders are professors of finance uh, executives at banks um, the list goes on is a finance committee then going to be necessary maybe so but maybe not right but the elders have the determination of whether or not we need a finance committee in this situation we're of a, of a place right now, we're small enough that, and I lean hard enough on the finance committee as it is, they're going to be necessary. There's not a finan the financial prowess amongst the elders to be able to handle the kind of things that, that are, are necessary for this church to function. So, but again, it, there it is a determination of the elders. That's some of the trust that you're, you're placing in, in the elders is going, they're, they're seeing that we need this to sort of deacon the finances of the church. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to appoint some of that so that we don't have to be as steadfast over the top of it as a finance committee would be. Elders. So, so what it is, is there's a, a mutual nomination that happens. Elders are looking, maybe they look at a, a person and they identify that is someone who is elder qualified. I happen to know that person is elder qualified. But you happen to look at maybe a couple other person, people and you know that they're elder qualified. So the church submits names that they think that elders should consider as being elder qualified. And we still have the responsibility of going, I happen to know that one's not qualified. I happen to know that one might be qualified. Let me ask. So we start to do the investigation on that particular person. We might also bring forward to the congregation someone else who is elder qualified and who meets the qualifications that you didn't mention. So, yes, yes. It is a, it's a, a mutual kind of meeting of the minds in that, that perspective. I, I, you don't want an elder body being all my friends, right? Yeah, no. I don't want that. That's the reason I want to move from just me and everybody who answers to me for a job to uh, a, a people that don't answer to me, right? And who aren't afraid to sit in a room and say, I disagree, right? Right. Right, right. That's another thing. Yeah, because he got cancer at the time, and he's like, who's going to lead the church? Yeah. And that nobody, nobody there was doing the teaching right. and preaching. So, right. you know, who's in? You know. Yeah, I'm walking down the street, and a bus hits me. Yeah. We probably don't meet on Sunday, you know. But if we have a plurality of elders, they put my dead body in my smoker and lay, lower me down into the <laughs> ground. And, <laughs> and he's gone. <laughs> you know, let's 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 meet for church and then a potluck afterwards. Uh, so, so, 
With that, we'll, we'll pray and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time we could gather together. And I pray for the time our church is going through, that you, you would just allow the questions to be asked and we'd be able to tackle them one by one. And I pray that every mind in here be satisfied with your word and, and really persuaded more than anything, not by my words, but by the word of, that you have given to us. And I pray that more than anything, that our church would be led into a healthy direction a beautiful direction, a direction where the gospel can flourish not only inside these walls, but especially outside, too, where the, the gospel is going to people of all nations. And, um, and we would love to be a part of that, and that's all we want to see. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.